0: Knock knock. Who's there? Oh good, I knew I'd have somebody. Thank you, Austin. A little old lady. lady All this time I never knew you could yodel. Okay, insert the ground. Okay, there you got it. it. Knock knock. Etch. Bless you. Okay, last one, I promise. Knock knock. Who's there? Two. You English students should know better. It's to whom. <laughs> have you ever wondered why you're compelled to finish a knock knock joke? It always makes you, kind of leaves you feeling a little foolish, doesn't it? You know how it goes. You know the whole premise of the thing. You know how they work. You've heard them before, and at best, they cause you to groan. It's like, ah, oh, this one again. Do you ever wonder why you have to stick around to hear the punchline of a joke? Or why you can't just put a book down when you're three-fourths of the way through, or you can't turn a show off when you're three-fourths of the way through. You have to see the end of it. Chances are that book, that show, that joke, whatever it is, isn't going to change your life. So why are we compelled to do it? Why are we compelled to learn all about it? I think there's a part of us that just wants to know. We want to know what's going on. We want to know the joke so no one can pull that one on us again. We want to know the story. We want to know how the story ends before the end of the book or the book cover closes or the credits start rolling. We don't like not knowing. We want to solve the mystery. So where am I going with this? How is this meaningless introduction going to work into this sermon? I have no idea. It's a mystery to me. And now it's a mystery to you. But we'll go on and we'll find out. I'm just as intrigued intrigued as you, but don't worry, we'll get there. Mysteries intrigue us. They have a way of capturing our attention, don't they? We want to know how it ends, how it resolves, how it's solved. This morning we're going to look at the greatest mystery of all time, the most profound mystery that we could ever learn. In Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, he reveals the ultimate mystery to us, It's a mystery that even angels long to look into, Scripture tells us. So what is this mystery? Open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and follow along with me as I read from verse 24 to chapter 2, verse 3, and we'll find out. Paul reveals why he suffers, he reveals what the mystery is, and he reveals this mystery's treasure. So please stand out of respect for God's word as I read Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. reading in Jesus' name. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father God, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive this message that you have for us today. Jesus, help us to see you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The book of Colossians is one of the captivity epistles in Scripture, and that's a fancy way of saying that it's simply one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Paul's life wasn't one that you and I would call comfortable, for what you know of Paul. He suffered quite a bit. He suffered a lot, actually, so many times. And then throughout Scripture, he recalls these sufferings that he goes through. Yet the amazing thing is he is never bitter about any of it instead. And here in verse 24, we see his attitude towards the suffering that he goes through. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. Nobody likes suffering. That's why it's called suffering. So why does Paul say here that he rejoices in this suffering? If we read the verse, we can find out why he rejoices. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The answer to why Paul is rejoicing is given here. He's rejoicing because he's suffering for others. And we can understand that. For those of us who have loved ones, and I think that includes all of us here, when we see them going through suffering, we would do just about anything to take that suffering on us so that they don't have to suffer So that they could have at least a moment of relief we'd do just about anything but unfortunately that's not how it works but paul here is rejoicing because he is suffering on behalf of others he's rejoicing because you and i aren't going through the sufferings that he is going through that he is taking one for the team so to speak here he's rejoicing that the suffering is coming his way instead of other believers but the verse continues on that second part of the verse probably raises a few eyebrows as we read it, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Were Christ's afflictions not enough? Does he have to be crucified again? Does he have to be tortured again? How can it possibly be lacking a theologian much wiser than I points out that the word that's used here for affliction in nowhere throughout Scripture, and nowhere throughout Scripture is this word used to refer to Jesus' redemptive work. That's not how this word is used. It's not what this word is referring to here. So it means that the things that are lacking that Paul is speaking about doesn't refer to his suffering or his atoning for sin. Doesn't refer to what Jesus did on the cross. That's done. It's finished in Christ. Our sin has been paid for. He has taken it all. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath for you and for me. So, what affliction is lacking here? You remember the words of Christ, or you remember that the world hated Jesus, right? When I say the world, I don't mean the physical earth here. I'm not talking about the trees and the fields and the water and the sand. No, when I mean the, when I refer to the world, I'm referring to the spiritual forces in this world that are under the devil's deception. Anything that is outside of Christ hates Christ because it tells us that we are wrong. It tells us that we are sinful. It tells us that ultimately we are not in control. And this is the world's greatest fear, I guess, to find out that Christ is in control. And so the world hates Christ. And the world still hates Jesus. But it can no longer inflict pain on Jesus. He's been crucified already. And he has risen again and he is now glorified. And no one can ever hurt him again. The world can't touch Jesus. And so instead, the world afflicts his followers. Remember the words of Jesus: A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And these are the afflictions that Paul is getting at here. These are the afflictions that are still lacking, the afflictions that the world still suffers on for believers, or still inflicts on believers for the sake of Christ. And these afflictions continue, and they will continue to continue until Christ comes back. Paul is rejoicing here because he is doing his part in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions and suffering for Christ and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul backs up this idea with the next couple of verses in the text. He says that he was made a minister so that he would fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints Paul rejoices in his suffering because it means that the word of God is going out. It means that he is doing something otherworldly, something that the world hates. He is doing something in line with Christ. He is preaching and teaching the mystery of God. Paul's joy comes from sharing the mystery of God that's been made known finally. So the question comes, what is this mystery? We've got to know. The mystery itself. What do you picture when you hear that word mystery, maybe some crime tape, you want to figure out who done it, a bunch of detectives, maybe a green and blue mystery machine, a Volkswagen bus. When we think of mysteries, we think of something that needs to be solved. That's where our mind goes, because that's how we use that word mystery. But in Scripture, it's used differently. Here it refers to something else, something that would have never been known unless it had been revealed something that would never have been known unless it had been revealed. One theologian defines it as a reality that God has revealed, that it may be proclaimed to all the world. It's not something to be kept hidden, but it's something to be proclaimed to those who don't know what it is. What is this mystery and what is this thing that was hidden for so long that God has finally made manifest to his saints, that he has finally revealed to his saints that you and I can know now? Paul reveals this mystery in verse 27. Christ in you. That's it. That's the mystery. It's easy for that statement to go in one ear and come right out the other without bouncing around and making you think about things in your brain. So let's pause here for a minute. Think about it. Think about this profound statement. Christ in you. Who is Jesus? Jesus. Who is this Christ who is in you? Jesus is the Son of God, the uncreated one, the creator of the universe, our Lord and Savior, as we confess in the creed, the one who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is eternal, who is holy and righteous. And the word of God says that he dwells in you. How can this be? How can Jesus, God in the flesh, be in me? He isn't a spirit. He isn't a force. He isn't a good feelings. He's not an idea. He's not my conscience. He is a person. How can he be inside of me? How can he be inside of each one of us? He's the second person of the Trinity in whom the fullness of deity, Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. The man who was born of Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, dead, and buried, the one who has ascended into heaven and who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and that is where he is ruling and reigning now. And scripture says that all things are subject to him. This man, this person, Jesus, Paul writes, God reveals in this mystery, is in you. How can it be? Let's look at ourselves for a bit and ask this question question I don't want to ask because I don't want to think about the implications of it. What kind of a residence do you provide for Jesus? Do you realize that you take Jesus with you wherever it is that you go? Do you realize that when you were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God put his name on you and that you have been united into Christ Jesus and that he now lives in you? Do you realize that you have been crucified with Christ and therefore it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you? That you are a temple of God and Jesus dwells in you. Christ, holy and righteous, God incarnate in the flesh, in whom is every spiritual blessing, God's word says, lives and dwells in you. Jesus, in whom there is no darkness, dwells in you. And Jesus, who is an uncreated being, takes up his residency in creation, in created beings. In people like you and me who are unholy, who are unrighteous, who are unclean. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses goes up to the mountain of God, and he speaks with God, and his face is just glowing, seeing the glory of God, and he comes down to his people, and the people say, Moses, don't talk to us, put a bag over your head or something, we can't handle this glory This glory now dwells in you. And when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God and he sees all the angels saying, holy, 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 and he sees the presence of God, his holiness, and he sees his own unrighteousness, and he says, woe is me for I am undone. This holy and righteous God lives in you? How can this be? defies all logic. It defies all rationale. It defies our own views of reality, our own perception of reality, and yet this is what scriptures say. How can this be? Experience won't tell you this. Searching into your own soul isn't going to reveal to you how this works. This mystery can only be revealed in one way, and that's through God and his scripture in his word, which he tells you. And God has made this manifest to the saints in his word. So how can a holy and righteous God dwell in us? You and I who are far from holy, who are far from righteous, and the answer is again found in Scripture. It's revealed to us in Scripture, in Ephesians chapter 5. And it's a passage that is common for different weddings. Maybe it was read at your wedding. I think it was read at, at my wedding. It's a word of advice for husbands. But this word of advice, the application for this text, goes much beyond husbands who are marrying a wife here. Listen to what Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27 says. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, Or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God is saying here to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And the application for each one of us is how has Christ loved the church? What has he done for the church? And this verse reveals to us Christ has cleansed the church. Christ has sanctified the church. It's a past action that has been done. It's complete. How did he do it? The answer is what he has done for you and for me on the cross, the suffering and atoning for our sin. And as Christ has fully paid that penalty, he can present us to the Father, holy and blameless, without wrinkle, without any spot in all of her glory. You've been united with Christ in your baptism, and that has continuing significance for you today. It's not an event that just happened in the past and it's done and you move on from it. In that event, you were cleansed. In that event, you were sanctified. In that event, Christ put his name on you. I am claimed you as his own child and Christ dwells in you. And so the effects of your baptism continue each and every day as Christ dwells in you. As Christ is continuing to dwell in you, he is cleansing you and he is sanctifying you. Earlier, a little bit ago, we confessed the Christian faith together and we confessed these words. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And in this section, we confess that we believe in the Holy Spirit and we confess what the Holy Spirit's work is, what he does. And this is what we learn in confirmation class, if you remember from that. And if not, don't worry, I'll explain that to you again. We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and what does this mean? I believe that he has called me through the gospel. He has enlightened me with his gifts. He has sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. And in like manner he as he calls gathers enlightens and sanctifies the whole christian church on earth and he preserves it daily in union with jesus christ in the one true faith and in this christian church he daily forgives abundantly all of my sins and the sins of all believers that at the last day will raise me up and all the dead and will grant everlasting life to me and to all who believe in christ this is most certainly True. Paul says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. That Christ dwelling in you as the Holy Spirit daily and abundantly forgives all of your sins. He sanctifies you and you are sanctified. So we don't have to worry about what kind of dwelling place do I provide Jesus. It doesn't matter to him. He sanctifies it and makes it holy because that's what he does. This is our glorious hope that you are declared holy. Because of Christ living in you. Not by your actions, not by your victory over sin, not by your own efforts, but by Christ living in you. This is the hope of glory that we all have. We're not judged on our actions, on our deeds, but we're judged on Christ living in me. In verse 28, Paul joyfully proclaims this mystery so that more people will be complete in Christ. Complete in Christ, or other translations say perfect, perfected in Christ. Meaning that there's nothing more to add. If Christ is in you, nothing else matters. What more could you possibly need? All throughout this book of Colossians, Paul is declaring the excellency of Jesus Christ, declaring the sufficiency of Christ and what he has done for you. He says we don't need anything else. And this is why Paul is laboring and striving to declare this message, to reveal this mystery so that more people would be complete and perfect in Christ. This is why Paul rejoices in his suffering, because it means this message is going out. This is why Paul rejoices in suffering, because more people are understanding this mystery that Christ dwells in you. And he continues to proclaim this mystery, whether he's in prison or free, to people who are either in prison or people who are free, to Jews and to Gentiles, whether people are rich or whether people are poor, wherever you find yourself today, Christ proclaims this mystery to you. And this mystery is for you. The hope of glory is being complete in Christ and Christ in you. If Christ is in you, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you do or what kind of suffering you go through. Christ in you is all that matters. And this glorious mystery is a wealth of treasure. This glorious mystery has so many implications for us, so much value to us. What treasures does this mystery avail? What treasures do we have in this mystery? Mystery's treasure is revealed in this text as well. As Paul continues writing, he reveals its worth. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, he says, "...that their hearts may be encouraged," having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge what kind of treasures does this truth bring the church in the Colossian church here at this time was being pressured in to give in to different heresies, different false teachings. And as you read the book of Colossians, you can put two and two together here and find out what Paul is writing against. And that's what we find out, how we find out that they're dealing with these other teachings. People were saying that you had to believe in Christ plus something else. That Christ in and of himself wasn't sufficient, but you need something else, whatever it might be. And the church has continued to deal with this false teaching, this idea ever since then, even before then, continues to deal with this idea that Christ isn't sufficient in and of itself, in and of himself, but you need something else, whatever that something else is. As you read the rest of Colossians, and I'd encourage you to do that sometime today, it doesn't take all that long. But as you read this book, you see the sufficiency of Christ. And you see that in Christ, we need nothing else because in Christ, the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form, dwells in bodily form. And Paul is encouraging these believers here that Christ is sufficient. Encouraging these believers here with the mystery that Christ is in you. You don't need anything else. This idea that Christ is in you encourages hearts. For those who are doubting, Any hearts in that day that were doubting or anyone who is doubting here today with the questions, am I okay? Do I have to do this too? What else must I do in order to be saved? Can Christ really dwell in me even though I have sinned? Does he know what I've done this past week? People dealing with that question, we are assured that Christ in you is sufficient and that Christ in you removes barriers and it's together in love. First and foremost, the barrier that our sin creates between God and us. The sin that creates a barrier between a holy and righteous God and sinful, wicked human beings like myself and like you. Christ has removed that barrier and instead knits us together with God in love as he dwells in us. But the implications of that goes further. And he knits together in love all of those in whom Christ is dwelling. The whole church. Meaning those of us who are here in this congregation, who are trusting in Christ as Christ dwells in us, he is knitting us together into one body. Whether we agree or disagree with people we sit next to or people we sit across from, it doesn't matter. Christ is knitting us together. And for people beyond these boards, walls, doors, all those things, Christ is knitting us together into one body, his temple, as Ephesians tells us. He removes barriers and knits together in love, and it's a unity that transcends anything else that this world has to offer. It transcends denominational lines. It transcends allegiances to different sports teams. Brendan, I know I gave you a hard time about the Packers shirt today, but in Christ we are one. I can deal with it. I'll get over it. It transcends political affiliations. It transcends national affiliations. Christians can come together as we are united in one body, in Christ, as Christ dwells in you. And that has massive significance for all of us. Christ in you also brings the assurance of salvation. Christ, our advocate with the Father, who sits at the right hand of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, dwells in you. What can man do? What can the devil do? What can the world do? No accusation that can come up against you can come that Christ has not already dealt with. Just verses before our text in chapter 1, verse 22, Paul reminds these believers of their hope. He says this, Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ has already reconciled you in his body with God to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach before his Father. How does he do this? Because he dwells in you and because of the finished work of what he has done for you on the cross. Christ in you means that you've been united with Christ, that his death is your death, that he died for your sins. You don't need to die for them anymore, that his life is is your life that his holiness is your holiness this is the hope of glory that we have verse 3 is a great reminder for the believers that day and for you and i today in christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge there's nothing else that you need there's no secret knowledge There's no other acts that you must do. There's no new thing that you're going to have to do someday in the future in order to be saved or in order to stay saved. There's never going to be anything else that you need to do in order to be saved because Christ in you means that you are saved, and he saves you. What you need and what you'll always only need is Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. God reveals to us the greatest mystery of all time. The mystery, Jesus Christ himself, the God of the universe, dwells in Christ in you. The holy God takes up residence in sinful men, and he sanctifies them. This mystery has been known and has been made known to present every man complete in Christ. This mystery has been made known to you in order to present you complete in Christ before God the Father. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we do praise you that you have made reconciliation with us, that you have removed the barriers of hostility between us and you. You've dealt with our sin. God, that you, through baptism, through your word, you come to dwell in us through your Son. Jesus, we thank you that you dwell in us to remind us that our sins are forgiven, to remind us that we are not judged wholly by our actions or our deeds, but by, we are judged wholly by what you have done and that your actions are complete. And so, Lord, as we continue in this life and as we find different times where we might suffer for the sake of the gospel, we rest in the assurance that you still dwell in us, and that you have made reconciliation between us and the Father. We pray, Lord, that you would help us share this message with those around us too, that you continue to be removing these barriers and your mystery would continue to be revealed to all people in all generations, in all nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.